we see that the Lord uh, compares or speaks of the life of the believer and compares it, as does the psalmist in Psalm 1, to a tree, a tree and its fruit. And so we're going to read from verse 43 to the end of the chapter, and our text is going to be verse 43 and 40, uh, through 45. Hear now the word of the Lord. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for out of the overflow of his heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like, who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood claimed the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who builds a house on the ground without, foundation, without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. This evening we're going to consider Lord's Day 24. We find it on page 31 in the back of the Psalter hymnal, the blue Psalter hymnal, Lord's Day 24. Question and answer 62, 63, and 64. We'll read this responsively because it deals with the subject of good works, of keeping God's law. And when we look at the Catechism, we see that it comes right after dealing with the Apostles' Creed. So we say, for example, in the words of the Apostles' Creed, what we believe, and the Catechism poses the question, if you do believe all this, what impact does it have on your life? Why do good works? What's the point of it? And so it deals with this issue of doing good works. And, and Christ, indeed, in the scripture, when, when he speaks of good works, he speaks of this tree which bears good fruit. And then he goes on to say, well, what is a person like who bears good fruit? Well, he's like someone that builds a house on a good foundation. And if the floods come, that house stands secure. When he hears my words and puts them into practice, he establishes his life in the Lord. And those who hear my words and don't put them into the practice, well, they're like a man who builds his house on the sand and the floods come and the house is swept away and its destruction is complete. So Lord's Day 24 talks about putting things into practice in our 
Christian lives. What's, what do we have to do in the Christian life? So we'll read this responsively. Question and answer 62. Why can't the good we do make us right with God or at least help make us right with him? How can you say that the good we do doesn't earn anything when God promises to reward it in this life and the next? But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? Congregation beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord was a wonderful teacher. In fact, one of the titles that he was known by when he was here on earth in his earthly ministry was rabbi. Rabbi is simply the Hebrew word for teacher. And he was a good teacher. He was a great teacher. Now, you know, good teachers do not simply give answers. Good teachers make us think about our answers. Now I know that's hard to imagine in the day of Google and the internet when you want to find an answer to a question you just type in and up pops the answer and there it is on your computer. Well Christ isn't like that. He makes us think about what we are doing, think about how we are going to find the answer. For example, boys and girls, if, if you uh, were a young child and your mother was having someone over for some company over, some family over, and you wanted to help her out and you were just learning about numbers. And so you said to your mother, I want to help you out. She said, she'd say, well, okay, you can put the spoons on the table. And you'd say, well, how many spoons do we need? Now your mother could say, well, we need 12 spoons. That would be the answer. We need 12 spoons. Or she could say, well, there's going to be eight people at the dining room table. And there's going to be four people at the kitchen table. So how many spoons do we need? Well, then you have to think, you know, eight and four is 12. And that helps you to learn better uh, when you respond sometimes, not with an answer, but with a little information so that you can find the answer. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, was on many occasions asked questions and, and he would respond with a parable. Sometimes, you know, people like 
quick, easy answers. Well, I'm going to give you uh, uh, ten, uh, 10 steps for a happy marriage. Or you see some of these people that go around and say, well, I'll give you 15, 15 uh, uh, reasons for uh, ga gaining financial success. Here's the answer. Do one, two, three, four, etc. Well, you know, the Lord was asked once, for example, uh, who's my neighbor? The law says we are to love our neighbors. Uh, well, who is my neighbor? Well, he doesn't give a list of ten things that we should look for in a neighbor. But he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the Levite and the priest, they walk by this man who was beaten up and left on this road on the way to Jericho. And the Samaritan goes by and helps him out. Now, who's, who's his neighbor? Uh, think about it. Uh, who is your neighbor? Well, your neighbor is, is someone who needs you. Now, this is the last Sunday service of the year 2019 the last service, Sunday service, of the decade. Next Sunday will be in a new year, 2020, and a new decade, and it's a time when people think about their lives, and they, they make resolutions, New Year's resolutions. Next year, I, I want to do certain things. Maybe I want to quit some bad habits I have, or... I want to spend more time with my family, or I want to do this or that. All kinds of resolutions that they make, because they want to live better lives. And perhaps it's a good time, too, for Christians to think. To think a little bit about serving the Lord in the coming year, about Christian service, about obedience, about keeping the law, about the place of God's law in the Christian life. And that's precisely what Lord's Day 24 is. That's precisely what it's about. And Christ addresses that same matter in, in, Luke, 20, in Luke chapter 6, and, and he says, well, this is what the Christian life is about. It's about being a good tree. Now, a good tree has one essential quality. It doesn't have to be beautiful. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be uh, straight and, uh, uh, or that. But a good tree does what trees are supposed to do. And he's referring here to, like, fig trees. He says it bears fruit. And the fruit that it bears is good fruit. And it keeps his leaf in the right season. So if we are to live our Christian lives, we have to ask ourselves the question, uh, am I a good tree? What kind of fruit is being born in my life? And we're going to consider that this evening. And the Catechism frames the problem with three questions in Lord's Day 24. Three questions that were critically important and have been struggled with in, throughout the history of the Christian church. Huh? And the first question is this. 
we've got a problem as Christians. We've got a problem as human beings. Because the psalmist tells us in Psalm 54, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. The Bible tells us that all of our all of our good works are as filthy rags. And and it's impossible to achieve or attain the righteousness of God. We cannot be perfect because all of our works are stained and twisted and distorted by the problem of sin in our lives. And so if you think you're going to be saved with your good works, I mean, it's like that, uh, what is that Greek figure, Sisyphus, was that his name, where he pushed a rock up a hill and he'd get near to the top and the rock would come rolling down again. And he'd do it again and do it again and do it again and that was his lot in, in life. That's what it's like if you think you're going to be saved by your own good works. Well, logically then, the next question comes. Secondly, why should we do good works? How can you say that the good we do doesn't earn anything when God promises to reward it in this world and the next? What's the point of doing good works? And finally, if we can't do good works, doesn't this teaching make us indifferent and wicked? So that's what we're going to consider this evening, these three questions. And the first question is this. If God requires perfect righteousness, are good works possible? And the answer to that question is, no, they're not. If we think that good works will merit salvation, if we do good works thinking that we are going to place God in our debt, and that because of the good works we do, we will somehow be saved. Forget it. That is impossible. That is utterly and totally impossible. That's not to say, however, that some people do good works. I mean, we look around us and we may see that there are a lot of people that do good works in a relative sense. And they may do it, for example, because we're human. And, and, and look, how would it be in society if no one did any good? We were, if we were as wicked and evil as possible, if God did not restrain sin in society, it would be a very, very harsh world in which to live. And there are people and unbelievers who do good works. They may contribute sums of money for children's hospitals. They may 
uh, donate to the poor and the homeless and that sort of thing. I mean, that's, that is a good work in a relative term. But so often, when you see people doing good works, they want some sort of payback. Some sort of payback. Well, I'm going to donate uh, this large sum of money to a hospital, so, uh, but on one condition, that my name goes over the door. Uh, or, or I want to uh, be nice to others because then others will be nice to me. Or I, I want to do good works because, because I believe in God and then if I'm nice to God and does what he likes, he'll be nice to me. And we fail to recognize that man is in sin, that we are naturally inclined to sin. We are not naturally inclined to do good. In fact, I'm always struck by this time of year when you watch television, you have a lot of these news stories, human interest stories, you know, and you'll see people at Thanksgiving passing out turkeys to the poor or they'll be bringing gifts to, uh, to, to, to poor children in various schools and backpacks and all this stuff. And, and then they're interviewed and they say, well, why are you doing this? Well, you know, it, 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 it makes me feel good when I see smiles on, on children's faces, it makes me feel good. Well, okay, that's, that's fine. But when you analyze, when you analyze these reasons that people often give, ultimately, they are about oneself. They are about feeling good and, and one of the ways in which I may feel good about myself and build up my self-esteem or my ego or whatever is to, is to be generous with other people. Ultimately, these things center around themselves. Now that also confronts us with another question. If we do good, the guide for doing good is God's law. And why then, if it is impossible to please God on our own, apart from Christ and, and apart from his finished work, if it is impossible to please God, why do good works? Why keep the law? Now that's an important question. That's an important question. And it's a question with which the church has struggled for generations. What is the place of God's law in the Christian life? Why keep it? And there have been three answers that have been offered in the history of the church. The first answer is is the answer that is given by some people who say, we don't have to keep the law. We don't need to keep the law. 
We are under grace. We're not under the law. So forget about the law. This position is called antinomian. Nomos is the Greek word for law. And they're against the law. Why keep the law when Christ has kept the law for us? We are under grace. So forget about the law. Don't worry about it. If you're saved, you're saved. If you're not, you're not. Don't worry about the law. It just clutters up our lives. Now that's one answer. That's one answer. Why keep the law? Well, you know, we can keep the law because we want a reward. Uh, we can keep the law if, if we're fearful for not keeping the law. If I speed, I'll get a ticket. Or we may keep the law because because it is a matter of heartfelt obedience. But you know, all of these things are imperfect, stained with sin, and cannot merit salvation in itself. It's impossible to earn eternal life by way of the law. All of our good works are as filthy rags in terms of our salvation. Then what is the point of the law? Well, there are those who said there is no point to it anymore. That's Old Testament. We are under grace. We're not under the law. And I'm, every, I'm sure everyone has, at some point in their, in their life has heard that, that's, that phrase that, that really strikes at the very heart of a heresy. The scripture never teaches that. In fact, some people used to carry it so far they'd say, look, if we are under grace and not the law, Maybe what we ought to do is sin so that grace will abound. The Apostle Paul had to deal with that, you know. Well, we're under grace, so we don't have to bother about the law anymore cluttering up our lives. Let's just sin, and, and whatever we do, we know that God's grace is greater than our sin. Let's sin that grace may abound. Romans 6, verse 1, huh? What then shall we say? The Apostle Paul is appalled by this point of view. What shall we say about this? Shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. We are under grace. That is true. But you see, sin does not stimulate an outpouring a greater outpouring of grace, and the Apostle Paul rightly condemns that view. You know, in a sense, it's a, it's a way of, of tempting God, isn't it? Uh, Christ did that, was subject to that when Satan took him up to the temple. He says, hey, Messianic Psalm says, Psalm of the Messiah, he will give his angels charge over you lest you dash your foot against the stone. So here we are at this pinnacle of the temple. Why don't you jump off? 
What does Christ say? You shall not tempt the Lord your God. God says, I will take care of my people. That means if you're a Christian, you don't shut your eyes when you cross the street. That means if you're sick, you don't just simply think you can pray for healing and not go to a doctor. That's tempting God. And, and, and yet there are those who think that they can sin intentionally and willfully and frequently and not be bothered by it because God's grace is greater than our sin, the antinomian. The second view is a little different. It's the view of the Church of Rome in some sense. Yes, we need grace to be saved. But we can't take God's grace for granted. What we have to do is do good works to complete Christ's saving work, to finish that saving work of Christ. We need grace, and that enable us, enables us to do good works. And there are some people that do a great deal of good works, and they're called saints, and they've done, they've done works of supererogation. They've done works that are, are far more than they need for salvation, and these works are deposited in a heavenly bank account, a treasury of merit. And so if you don't have enough good works in your life, well, you venerate the saints, you may pray to the saints, and you may say, how about, how about giving us a few of those good works that are extra that you don't need anymore? I'm not as good as you were, so I'd appreciate that. You know, Luther, uh, early in his, his life, uh, was walking along the road one day, and, and, uh, and the lightning struck a tree next to him. The weather was kind of bad. Lightning struck this tree, and he cried out, St. Anne, help me, help me, help me. That was the mindset. Huh? These, uh, these saints uh, could, could help out the people on earth with sharing their good works from this treasury of merit. The problem with that view is that it denigrates the work of Christ. Christ saves to the uttermost or he doesn't save at all. When he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. That sacrifice for our sins is complete. We do not have to re-sacrifice Christ over and over and over again. So that's the second view concerning the place of the law. It's partially helpful for our salvation. And in the end, we can earn God's favor. We can earn a reward. Now the third response to this issue of the place of, self, place of the law in our life is that there is no merit that accrues to us for keeping the law of God. 
God does not say, thank you for obedience, for doing what essentially we were created to do. You know, Christ tells us that uh, story, I believe it's in Luke 12, <clears throat> tells us the story of, of the servant who's out in the field taking care of the flocks and uh, his master comes home at night and the servant comes in and he makes his master a meal and, and then he goes and eats himself. And Christ asks this question, he says, now does the master thank the servant for making a meal? And the answer to that is no. The servant is doing what he was supposed to be doing. The servant is doing what he was hired for, what, he, what his job was. Interestingly enough, I, I, I some time ago was, was listening to a program, that program on Channel 11, Downton Abbey, about uh, the English aristocracy. And they actually hired a historian because they wanted to be historically accurate to see how these people lived in the Victorian era in England, the aristocracy lived in. And apparently the writers had put in the script that uh, the, the uh, gentry, the aristocracy, would say uh, uh, to their servants, oh, thank you, thank you. And this historian said, no, no. I mean, they had, they had cooks, they had valets, they had footmen, they had chauffeurs, they had people waiting on them hand and foot, opening the doors for them, putting on their suits and, and ironing their clothes. And, and they said they'd be, they'd be saying thank you all the time. And so they never said thank you. Essentially, because that's what servants were there to do. That was your role in life. And so it is with some people, they think that God owes them a thank you. You know, this fellow's such a nice guy and I, he's passed away. I can't imagine that God would not be pleased with his life because he was such a good guy and that God would not usher him into the halls of heaven. That's a very prevalent view. So what is then the reason for doing good? What's the point? And that is that if we understand that we have been saved, that we have been saved by grace, that our lives have been spared from eternal condemnation because of the sacrifice of Christ. The point is, it arises a life of thankfulness, a life of good works, a life of joyful obedience arises from grateful hearts. You know, sometimes we think of obeying the law in a legalistic sense. But that's wrong. Certainly it's important to be concerned about the law, 
But if we're to think about it as Christians, when we meditate on God's law, we ought to do it with thankful, joyful hearts. I was reminded of that Christmas morning when the pastor said uh, us children had the flu and he was up at 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning and, and uh, yeah, he's probably holding the baby or holding the little one and, and trying to keep it quiet so that you don't wake up the other kids and his wife is changing the sheets in the crib and, and he's thinking, and I got to preach tomorrow. But you know, when we keep God's law, even in the midst of that kind of activity in our life, we can still be joyful. I remember years and years ago, um, we lived in Roseland. We lived next door to a Reverend Leitzma. Uh, some of you know him. And my wife was hanging out diapers on the clothesline in the backyard. And Leitzma was coming back from a hospital call or something. And he came in the yard and he came in his yard and he saw her hanging up, hanging up these diapers. And he said, well, looks like somebody's busy doing kingdom work. And... She thought, what do you know? But that's right. That's right. Kingdom work is doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done. And if you're unwilling to do it, if you're unwilling to serve the Lord in whatever position he has given you or whatever role he has given you in life, then you're missing out and what the law is all about, and what joyful Christian obedience is about. Because you see, the reward of Christian obedience is all of grace. Is all of grace. And that reward is a great reward, huh? Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man what the Lord has laid up for those who love him. It's all part of kingdom work. And if you don't want to take part in that kingdom work, if you're indifferent to it, if you don't want to accept your role in life that God has given you, even though sometimes it entails difficult things you don't want to do, then you're missing out on what kingdom work is all about. You know, sometimes we think about it in terms of big donations or big actions, but it's the day-to-day -day living our lives. I always am struck by that line in the book of James where James says, you know, if a man doesn't take care of his family, he's worse than a heathen and an unbeliever. And that's right. If you don't want to accept the role God gives you in life, if you want to be disobedient because you don't particularly like it, then you're missing out on what 
obeying the law and keeping the law is all about for the Christian. And finally, doesn't this make us lazy or indifferent or careless? And the answer that the Catechism gives is very interesting. On the contrary, because it is it is impossible for those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith that they should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Christ compares the godly life in the words of our text to being a good tree. And a good tree, as part of its very nature, bears good fruit. You don't want to pick figs from a thorn tree. It bears good fruit because that's what it is about. Like a fish was created to swim, like a bird was created to fly. Christians that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ will respond with good works, recognizing the greatness of their salvation. I know a man years ago was in a nursing home and one day, a fellow stopped by his room, and it turned out this fellow knew this man in the nursing home. He was an elderly man, and he was an elder for many, many years. And this fellow stopped by to say hello, and he said, I want to thank you. And he said, uh, this elderly man said, you want to thank me for what? Well, he said, many, many years ago, when you were an elder, you stopped by our house. And my mother was a widow. Her husband had died. And she, we were very poor, very poor. And you reached into your pocket and you gave us a gift. And it was, it was during the Depression. And it, it, was a, it was for that time a good gift kept the family going for a month. And, and he said, my mother so appreciated that. She talked about it for years and years later. And the elderly man in the nursing home said, well, he said, I remember your mother. And he said, I remember the family. So I even remember the address where you lived. He says, but I don't remember ever giving you a gift. I've forgotten that. You see, that's the way it is with a Christian life. Uh, you obey the law, you live a life of joyful obedience. And you don't do it because you're looking for a reward. You do it because you love the Lord. And the Lord says, you will get a reward. And that reward is of grace. That reward is, is treasure in heaven. Lay not up for yourselves treasure on earth, but treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't consume, where thieves don't break in and steal. You give in secret, and the Lord who sees in secret will reward you openly. So then, so then how should we live? 
Well, the answer the Lord gives us here is, is simple and direct. Be a good tree. Be a good tree. Be like a good tree. And remember that a good tree bears good fruit. Amen. O oh Lord our God, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the wisdom of your word. And we give thanks to that we may live joyfully day by day as recipients of your grace that has been shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the altar of the cross. And so may we respond day by day in joyful obedience to you. May we meditate on your word. May we meditate on your law. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we may find joy and peace and thanksgiving for what you have done for us. Hear us now, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.